If you would, please find Mark chapter 8. Mark 8, we're continuing this chapter that we began last week. And today we are going to study together verses 11 to 21. We're actually going to back up a little bit in our reading and just touch on the last two verses where we finished last week. So Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to read for us verses 9 to 21. And if you would please stand and we will read this together. I'll read it and you follow along, please. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000 and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat and his disciples, with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them. And getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? He said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Let's pray together, please. Father, we are grateful that we have your word. And we're grateful that we have the Holy Spirit to give us understanding because we need your help, Lord. We desire to understand this passage and the truths about you. And so I pray that you would help us to that end, that you would open our eyes this morning, that you would open our ears, that you would open our hearts and minds, that we would be ready to hear and to receive the truths that you have for us today. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would empower me to teach your word accurately and with your authority and that you would change our lives because of our time together around your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I looked at this passage this week, as I read through it, as I studied it, as I listened to other sermons on it, there are, there are two ideas of an outline that formed in my mind. And it's going to sound a little funny at first probably. But two parts of the outline. Unbelieving unbelievers and unbelieving believers. Verses 11 through 13 show us the unbelieving unbelievers, and that's the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And in this case, the unbelieving believers were Jesus' disciples, the 12, and that's from verses 14 to 21. And because they are both unbelieving 
in a sense, in this passage, they have something in common. And what they have in common is their hard hearts. So the ideas for today, the main points for you are that number one, hard-hearted people ask for more proof. They constantly ask for more proof. They always ask for more proof. We'll see that in verse 11. Twice we'll see that hard-hearted people don't understand. Verses 17 and 21. Hard-hearted people don't understand. And then these go together in verse 18. Number three, hard-hearted people are spiritually blind and deaf. And then hard-hearted people don't remember. Now, if that sounds like a downer, I understand. But I'd like to remind you, and I'll remind you again when we get to this next section, what did Jesus just do? What is the previous miracle that he worked? If we go back into chapter 7, you, you can cheat. He fed 4,000. What did he do before that? He what? Well, he did feed 5,000. But just prior, as we look at chapter 7, we had the feeding of the 4,000, beginning of chapter 8. Right before that, there was a man who was deaf. Remember, he was deaf and he had a speech impediment of some kind, stammered probably. And Jesus healed him. And what are we going to do next? You're, you're okay to turn the page if you need to. He's going to heal a blind man. That's very significant. We'll talk about it next time. So look at number three again. Hard-hearted people are spiritually blind and deaf. That's okay. Because Jesus can restore sight. And Jesus can restore hearing. He works miracles. That's what he does. He's a savior. He's a rescuer. He's a healer. He's a restorer. He's a forgiver. He's a savior. But let's see what this passage has for us because so often we, we read the Old Testament and we see, oh, the children of Israel are, are at it again. They're, they're in decline. They're walking away from the Lord. They don't know the Lord. They're raising a generation of kids that don't know the Lord. And we get to the New Testament. We read the disciples and think, boy, they're dumb. They're so slow. Why is that in the Bible? Because we're the same way. So before we just dismiss this, oh, I'm not like the Pharisees. Oh, I'm, I would have gotten it if I had been in the boat. Let's see, as we look into the mirror of Scripture this morning, where we fit in. My question that I'll ask you now and at the end is, is your heart hardened? Has your heart become hard? Are we concerned about the Pharisees? Sure. Are we concerned about the disciples? Sure. But you're the people studying this passage with me this morning. You're the ones hearing it. Is your heart hardened? Go back with me to verse 9. And this is a little bit odd. You're, if you have a study Bible, you may have different breaks. In my case, I have a New King James Bible that has a different break. And the reason I did this is that it, it breaks right in the middle of verses 9 and 10. So I'm putting verses 9 and 10 kind of with this next verse 11. Verse 9 says, Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, immediately got into the boat with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Where is the region of Dalmanutha? I don't know. You don't either. But, thankfully, we can compare Scripture with Scripture. And if we go to the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew 15, 39 says, And he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. You say, that doesn't help me. Well, we do know where Magdala is, historically. Or Magadon, maybe what your translation has. But this area of Dalmanutha may have been just another part of Magdala. It may even have been the harbor between Magdala and Capernaum. But they're headed to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And when he gets there, I don't know how much time elapsed. I don't know whether the Pharisees were on the shore meet, waiting to meet him. I don't know. But in, in my mind, it seems like it happened pretty quickly. They get off the boat, and the Pharisees are there. And in all likelihood, the Pharisees are still angry with him. Why would they be angry with him? Because the last time he had a confrontation with the Pharisees, they were coming to him saying, your disciples are not washing their hands correctly when they eat. They are not following the traditions of the elders. And much more reverently and politely, Jesus says, who cares? And he taught them a lesson about how the heart is what matters and not keeping the traditions of the Pharisees. God's word is what matters, not keeping the traditions of the elders. So they probably had a little chip on their shoulder as they come to him. And we're now getting to our first point. Hard-hearted people ask for more proof. Verse 11. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Now, you haven't studied this this week. You probably haven't read it until I read it to you just a minute ago. But it's kind of obvious what's going on in the text, isn't it? There are some clues here. They began to dispute with him, testing him. This is not a friendly visit. They're not, they're not coming to chat with him. Let's review. Who are the Pharisees? We've described them the way the Jesus Storybook Bible does. That's my favorite description, the extra super holy people. They're the religious leaders of the day. One of the two religious parties that made up the Sanhedrin. We'll get to talk about them more as we go on in the gospel. And Matthew added that the Sadducees were there as well. We'll come back to that later. This group of religious leaders began to dispute, or your translation may say argue or question him. And what are they asking for? They want a sign from heaven. Now, some of them may have seen him do previous miracles. They may have seen him or heard that he fed the 5,000 or fed the 4,000 or healed a deaf man or cast out a demon or healed a lame man. The things that he has done previously in the gospel of mark they may have heard of as some of them may have seen some of those miracles but that's not what they want they don't want any run-of-the-mill miracle not just healing somebody who's sick they want a sign from heaven they want like elijah called fire down from heaven or they want like in the wilderness god provided manna when they were following moses in the wilderness they want something astronomical, something incredible that no one could dispute. Everyone would understand that you are from God if you could do a sign from heaven. That's what they want. Now, as I thought about this more, I think it was John Phillips' commentary pointed out he gave them a sign from heaven. Anybody read Matthew 2? What happens in Matthew 2? The Magi, the wise men is what we usually call them, from the east, saw his star and came to Jerusalem first and then to Bethlehem. So there's already been a sign in heaven. When we get to the end of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 15, Jesus is on the cross. And it says there was darkness for the span of three hours. There's a sign from heaven. Did they fall to their knees and repent and believe? No. There were signs from heaven. They, that didn't work either. They're testing him. They're testing him. Many people see in this a parallel to Satan's temptation when he took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down because the angels will catch you and everyone will see this great miracle and believe in you. This is the same line of thought that these Pharisees are bringing 
that we need something remarkable. We need something that will blow everyone away because then they will believe and then we will believe. That's what they claim. Verse 12. But Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. This is an even stronger word than what we had before. This says he sighed deeply. That's how it's translated for us in English. This sigh was one of anger and exasperation because of their unbelief. This is different from what we read in chapter 7. I referenced the deaf man that he healed, and it says he sighed. This is different. There his sigh was compassion. He is feeling emotion, and that's what that sigh was for. This one, he's, he's sighing and he's feeling emotion. It's not the same emotion. This is anger. This is frustration. This is, this is becoming tedious that these people keep following me and they don't believe. They're only interested in justifying themselves. He begins with what's kind of a common phrase when Jesus wants to make a point. He'll say, in your King James, it would say, verily, verily, I say to you. Here it says, assuredly, I say to you. Your translation may say, truly, I say to you. So he's getting ready to tell them some truth. I tell you the truth, no. That's kind of the force of it. There will be no sign. Literally, if we were to translate this literally from the Greek, word for word, we would have, if shall be given unto this generation a sign, you'd have to punctuate that with like a dash, like it cuts off. So we have an if statement that has no conclusion. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me try to give you a parallel. If you're a parent in the room, you may have at some point said, if you do that again, and you have no idea what you're going to say next. Jesus would have known what he was going to say, but he didn't finish the statement. Some people think it may have been a, a, a common saying of their day that if this were to happen, let me die. Something like that. Modern, over my dead body, that kind of statement. I'm not saying that's what Jesus was saying. I don't know, because that gets into all sorts of other connotations if we talk about Jesus' dead body. So I, I don't know. But whatever it was, it was an inconclusive statement. But it was one that was very forceful. Very truly, I say to you, no. Nothing doing. No way. That's what he's saying to them. He refused their demand because he knew that even that type of sign from heaven would not convince them. They had already decided what they were going to believe and what they were not going to believe. And no miracle, no sign from heaven was going to change that because of their heart of unbelief. They had made up their minds. Some of you may be trying to witness to somebody right now. And it seems like whatever verse you offer, whatever line of reasoning you offer, they just need one more proof. They just need one more answer. They need, need one more verse. It's possible that this is not your issue. It's not that you need to learn more verses or that you just need a more compelling argument. There are times that that person is not going to believe no matter what you say. Why? Because this is a matter of the heart. This is a heart of unbelief. This is a mind that has made up its mind. I will not agree with 
the truth about Jesus. Furthermore, I'd say that when it came to working miracles, Jesus responded to people's faith. Often there's a reference to faith, not always. Often there was a reference to the person's faith or the friend's faith who brought that person who was lame. So he was responding to people's faith, not their demands. Jesus did not perform miracles to show off in front of the crowd. He was performing miracles according to his father's will and timing to meet specific needs. This person cannot hear. I am going to heal him and allow him to hear. This person is demon-possessed. This person is afflicted by leprosy. I am going to heal him to bring the Father glory and in some cases to reinforce a truth. Very early on, chapter 1 or chapter 2, we had the, the lame man who was brought to Jesus and they lowered him through the roof. You remember? And what was Jesus doing? He was healing the man, yes, to meet that need and also to prove himself. Because what had he said? Your sins be forgiven you. And he said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to him, take up your bed and walk. So what's he doing? He's reinforcing the word of God. He's building faith. He's responding to faith when he works a miracle. The emphasis is on faith. It's not on the demands. It's not on reason even so in general signs wonders and miracles are given to confirm the word of god not to produce faith so if miracles don't produce faith what produces faith where does it come from god's usual means of producing faith in us particularly saving faith in us is his word it is the word of god itself you say, how do you know that? Because the Bible tells us. I'm going to show you some verses. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Where does hearing come from? The word of God. Where does faith come from? The word of God. Let's go to the Old Testament. Psalm 19, 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That word converting can mean refreshing, restoring, reviving the soul. When he got saved, it was by faith. That is the only way any of us get saved. Where did that come from? Ultimately, it came from the word of God. Somebody telling you the truth that he or she had learned from the word of God, or maybe you were reading the Bible yourself. That's true of some of you in the room. New Testament again. 1 Peter 1.23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, how? Through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Where does faith come from? It doesn't come from seeing miracles. I'm not saying a miracle couldn't build your faith. And I'm not saying no one has ever been saved by seeing a miracle. But primarily, the main way God instills faith to us by his grace is by his word. What am I saying? I'm saying that these religious leaders who had unbelief in their hearts came to Jesus and they said, show us. We want a sign from heaven. Normally, no more of these little healing miracles. We want something big. He said, no. There was no belief in their hearts. And that wasn't the way the belief was going to get there. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. Back to Mark chapter 8. I'm at verse 13. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. He left them. I see this as an act of judgment toward them. He's responding to their unbelief. 
This ended his public ministry in Galilee. It's not that he's gonna, not going to come back to Capernaum. He will. But his public ministry in Galilee, the surrounding area around the lake, it's done. And when it says he departed to the other side, we'll find out in our next section in verse 22 that he's headed to Bethsaida. That's where they're going. But the rest of our section has to do with the trip, what they talked about on the way there. Jesus just left some unbelieving unbelievers on the shore. The religious leaders of that day are seeing him and his disciples get smaller on the horizon because he left them there. What were they thinking? Were they angry? Probably. Were they offended? Probably. Were they reconsidering their position? Probably not. Those are the unbelieving unbelievers. But here's the thing. Jesus is in a boat full of unbelieving believers. Because that's the position of the 12 at this point in time. Verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. That itself is funny. Now it may be that they left in a hurry. I don't know how long the confrontation was. In my imagination, and that's all it is, folks. But in my imagination... Jesus gets there, gets ready to step off the boat. The Pharisees are there. They're going to dispute with him. And he says, no, and they, they leave again. So it may have been quick. It may not have been that quick. I don't know. But these disciples who just acted as the distributors of bread and fish enough for 4,000 men, possibly 10,000 people, are on the boat now, and they have one loaf of bread. That's all they have. They did not have more than one loaf of bread with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So we start off understanding where is their mind. Their mind is on the physical. Their stomachs are growling, perhaps. And if not, they're thinking, what are we going to eat? We didn't bring anything along. He charged them. So often, when we're reading the scriptures, it's good to look for commands. It's good to look for imperatives. What we're about to get into right now is the imperative for this section. He charged them. This is a strict order, like a military term. Here it is. It's two parts. Take heed, beware. Take heed, beware. This is a double caution. The tense of the verb is that it should be continuing. And Hebert said that this first verb calls for mental alertness. The second one demands that we look attentively at the object called to our attention in order to avoid the danger. So we have two parts to this. We have take heed and beware. And as I thought about it, the way I'm going to picture it, and at least those of you old enough to drive will understand this, have you ever been in a construction zone? And you have barricades, concrete barricades, like jersey walls on either side of you at night. You're probably going to, let's add fog, okay, just to make it really good. You're going to be a little bit alert. You're going to be watchful. What are you going to be watching for? You're going to watch so that you're staying on the road between those barricades. And what's more, you're going to make sure you don't hit the barricade on either side. You with me? That's what he's saying here. Take heed and beware. Pay attention, be watchful around you, and don't hit the object that I'm warning you about. Don't go there. That's the picture. And what does he say? You would expect it to be very intense. He charges them. 
take heed and beware of leaven. Huh? Leaven? And your translation may say yeast, and that, that's, that's the idea. Um, I'm quickly going to get beyond my level of knowledge, but maybe some of you ladies who like to make bread, you've done a sourdough starter or something that has something from the last batch carries over into it. That's the idea. Back then, they didn't have yeast that, on hand that they could store. Instead, they would have bread that had yeast in it, leaven. It would spread through that loaf, and then they would take a little pinch off of that section of dough, that lump of dough before they baked it, and they would put that in the new one, and the, the yeast, the leaven, would spread through the new loaf and cause it to rise. And each time they would just take a little bit off, a little pinch off. The idea of leaven is that it, it infiltrates, it spreads, and often it does it imperceptibly. It's going to do it in a way you can't see. Often in the New Testament, not always, but often, leaven represents the evil influence of sin. That's what it most often means. It's a negative thing. So he's saying, take heed, beware of the leaven, and then he says, of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So we better understand what these are. The leaven of the Pharisees would include their false teaching. You say, how do you know that? I'm comparing scripture with scripture. You go to Matthew 16, get to the end of this parallel passage, it talks about, oh, then the the disciples got it. They understood Jesus was talking about their teaching. So the teaching of the Pharisees. And then also, if we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can go to Luke 12, 1, and it says it's their hypocrisy. The leaven of the Pharisees is their hypocrisy. Well, what's that? That's a big word. That's wearing a mask. That's faking it. That's acting. What, how did the Pharisees do that? Well, they acted the part. They wore the right things, they said the right things, they went the right places, they made sure everybody saw them doing their good deeds and their prayers and giving. It was all to be seen of men. They were doing all the right things and saying all the right things and wearing all the right things and washing their hands the right way. But in the words of Isaiah, their heart was far from God. That's the hypocrisy. What's their doctrine? Well, we saw in the case of hand-washing, they were taking the tradition of the elders, which might or might not be bad, might be good, but they were elevating them over Scripture. Here's the way we've always done it. Here are our traditions, and we're going to take that as more important than, oh, here's what Moses said that he got from God. So that's their teaching. Their behavior is hypocrisy, and Jesus is saying, stay away from that. Don't go there. What are they doing? They're adding to Scripture. Now, what about the leaven of Herod? Mark calls it the leaven of Herod. Could be Herod himself. Could be the Herodians, probably is. That was more of a political party. So let's talk about them for a minute. Ryrie says that the leaven of Herod was secularism and worldliness. MacArthur calls it immoral, corrupt conduct. Phillips said it's worldly compromise for the sake of material gain. What do we know about Herod? Well, if you were here for that part of our study a few weeks ago, probably a few months ago now, John the Baptist had called him out because he was married to, remember we looked at that family tree, he's married to his niece who's also his great niece who's also all that junk. He's living in sin. And he doesn't care. He's claiming to be the king over the Jews, the king of Judea. 
He's not a king. He's not a Jew. What he was, was a compromiser. And that's what John the Baptist is calling him out on. You are not living a righteous, holy life. You say you're a converted Jew. You're not living according to the law. The woman you're married to is divorced from someone else. She's your near relative. This shouldn't happen. This is wrong. Doesn't matter. I can do it. The law doesn't apply to me. I can get away with it. He lived for the world. He lived for power. James said that to be a friend of the world is to make yourself the enemy of God. Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed, poured into the mold of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Are we as believers supposed to be like the world around us? We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, that doesn't mean we're just as strange and weird in our separation as possible. That's not the goal. But there should be a difference between you and an unsaved family member, friend, neighbor, somebody who, who you know something about their lifestyle. There should be differences. Because I can't do that and sin against my Lord. That would not be a good thing for me to do. The Holy Spirit is convicting me. I can't do that. Some of you have experienced that. You've been saved as adults, and you're thinking, I can't do that anymore. I can't say that anymore. I can't. The Holy Spirit convicts, doesn't he? He changes us. But if we become hard-hearted, guess what? We start getting poured into that mold. And we take the shape of the world around us. And what's Jesus telling us this morning? He's saying, take heed, beware, stay away from that. Be on guard, be alert. Do not be taken in by the leaven of Herod. So Mark mentions the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Matthew talks about the yeast, the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. One of my sources said that many of the Herodians were Sadducees. So let's talk for a minute about the Sadducees. I know they don't appear in this passage, but they do in the parallel passage. So I think we should just take on all three of things we should be avoiding. Who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees were the religious liberals of that day. If the Pharisees were, we're going to keep every jot and tittle of the law, and then we're going to add our own, the Sadducees were more, we're going to pick and choose. They were rationalists. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. They would have rejected that Jesus could do any miracles. They would have rejected and did reject the resurrection. And they also rejected what would have commonly been looked at as the scriptures of that day. All they accepted as scripture was from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch the law. That's all that they would take. That's the Sadducees. They threw aside most of the scriptures. So what were they doing? They were picking and choosing, taking away from God's word. And I have a little chart here for you. If leaven means influence, that's what it does. It's influence that permeates, influence that gets in and changes us in ways we may not even be aware of. So we have these three groups. We have the Pharisees, 
What are the Pharisees doing? They're adding to God's word. We have this checklist that you need to keep all these extra things that we're adding to the law in order to be as holy as we are. Why? Their problem is self-righteousness. They want everybody to know how good they are. Make no mistake, I'm the holiest person in the room. I want everybody to know that. That's the heart of a Pharisee. If anybody questions it, they'll give you all the reasons that they are the holiest person in the room. The Sadducees, what are they doing? They're taking away from God's word. They're skeptical. Oh, I don't, I don't believe that. that. That's not true anymore. That, that's not for today. That's the heart of a Sadducee. What about a heart of a Herodian? They're going to ignore God's word. Yeah, I know it says that, but, but that, no. So you can see there are similarities here between the Sadducees and the Herodians. So their issue is worldliness. So I'm going to ask you, has any of that crept into your heart? We need to ask ourselves, this, this is given to us for our teaching, for our instruction in righteousness. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to take heed and beware. Stay away from, be on guard against. That's the warning. Now, we get a glimpse into what the disciples are talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about. What are the disciples thinking? What are they doing? Verse 16, and they reasoned among themselves saying, it is because we have no bread. This is one time they think, we got it. We know what he's talking about. This is not confusing. This is simple. He's talking about leaven. He means bread. Yes, I've got it. Oh, they were so mistaken. We do that. You realize that, right? It's not just the disciples. So they reason, they argue, is really what that means, among themselves. He's saying this because we forgot to get the bread. Thomas, you didn't bring the bread. Come on, can't you do any better than that? So they're, they're arguing. Now, let's do a little math, all right? When Jesus fed 5,000 men, he did it with how many loaves? Five, okay? That comes out to 1,000 men per loaf. When he fed the 4,000, there were 4,000 men, he had seven loaves, that comes out to 571 men per loaf. So don't you think... Don't you think, with one loaf in the boat, they would have been okay? Don't you think he could have fed 12? So is that what they should be concerned about? No. They're missing the point, and they're also missing the fact that Jesus, what was the lesson? You remember, maybe you don't remember, when we read about the feeding of the 5,000, and they were going across the lake, it said they did not understand about the loaves and fishes because their heart was hardened. Same thing we're talking about here. Their heart is hard. They're not thinking. They're not on the same page with Jesus. They're not getting this. Why? Because they have hearts of unbelief. What could they have? What should they have been thinking after the feeding of the 5,000? He's God. He just created. There is no way we can start with five loaves and two, a couple of fish and come out with 12 small baskets of leftovers. It doesn't work. He just created something. He has to be God. And in case they missed that the first time in front of the Jewish crowd, he does it a second time. There are 4,000 men, and they start off with seven, and then they have a few, maybe three fish. And he comes out seven large baskets. He is the creator of life. He is the sustainer of life. He is the provider of what we need for life. 
and he's there in the boat with them. And they're concerned that they don't have anything to eat. Would any of us ever come to that realization? Would any of us ever know that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling inside me, and yet I'm worried about, I'm not going to have money, I'm not going to have food, I'm not going to have clothes. That's all too easy for us. And that, that's where they are. They're on a different wavelength from Jesus. He's giving them a, a strong spiritual lesson. Take heed, beware. And they're thinking, oh, what are we going to eat next? And that's our second point. Hard-hearted people don't understand. They missed it. But Jesus, being aware of it, he know, knew what they were talking about. He's right there in the boat with them. Said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? When it talks about a hard heart, and you've probably heard this illustration before, clay, when it gets baked, it becomes very hard, right? That, that's a picture of our heart. That it can become hard over time. Become brittle. And what causes that? Well, if we look at other passages, hard-heartedness goes with rebellion. It goes with disobedience. This isn't just, oh, I'm having a tough day here. This is, I know what God wants me to do, and I don't want to do it. This is, I am not going to do what I know is right. I'm not going to believe this truth from God. So he says, is your heart still hardened? And this brings us to our third and fourth point that are in verse 18. Hard-hearted people are spiritually blind and deaf, and they don't remember. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? I said that there are parallels with hard-heartedness and rebellion. There are also parallels between not seeing and not hearing and rebellion. This is Ezekiel 12 too. Probably haven't read that verse recently, but son of man... You dwell in the midst of a rebellious house which has eyes to see but does not see and ears to hear but does not hear for they are a rebellious house. If I'm hard-hearted, there's rebellion somewhere in me that needs to be confessed and forsaken. I need to repent. He says, do you not remember? They have Jesus in the boat with them. He is the creator. He's able to manufacture food. He's able to protect them from a storm. He's able to heal. He's able to cleanse. David Guzik said, we can always take the past faithfulness of God as a promise for his continued love and care. Do you not remember? Have you not seen anything? Don't you remember anything you've seen or heard for the last two years, guys? How can you not trust me? He follows that up with, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they're relieved to know an answer finally. Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? Seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? What were they supposed to understand? I've said it a few times now that he is the creator, he is the giver of life, he is able to work miracles, he is able to provide for us. 
and they don't remember that. So at these times when my heart is hardened and when I am doubting, one solution to that, biblically speaking, is to remember. I need to rehearse in my mind, or if I keep a journal or have a record of, here's how God has met my needs in the past. Here's how God has guided me in the past. Here's how God has corrected me and gotten me back on the right track in the past. Here's how God has forgiven me in the past and restored me. Here is how God gave me victory in a spiritual conflict in the past. Here's how God has met a relational need for me, given me a friend, restored a relationship with a family member. Reviewing, rehearsing God's faithfulness. Because it corrects our thinking about who he is. It corrects our thinking about who we are. To know who is God? What has he done for me? Now there's a little bit of hope here because the Greek has a word that is not in the New King James that I just read. Some of you have an ESV or an NASB and you have an extra word there, yet. Did you see that? How is it that you do not yet understand? So there's a little hint of hope or a ray of light there that they're going to understand. And again, if you compare this to the parallel over in Matthew 16, it says there at the end, then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So in light of all this, hopefully you have a good understanding of what Jesus was saying and what they were thinking. Is your heart hardened? This morning? Have any of these ideas crept in that I'm going to make God like me better because I'm going to keep all the rules just the right way? Or I'm not so concerned about the rules. I, I don't need the rules. I, I'm fine, thank you. Or I just like the stuff in the. I like stuff. I'd like to have more money. I'd like to get that promotion at work so I can get that new car. Those are the lies that creep in. And harden our heart. Do any of those statements of the main points apply to you? Do you always need more proof? That's probably an unbeliever, but do you just, you need more? No, I don't believe that. No, I'm not going to take that verse at face value. Hard-hearted people don't understand. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually deaf. They don't remember. The bottom line is that hard-hearted people don't believe. So what's the solution? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Humble yourself, believe his word. Because here's the good news. God is a really good heart surgeon. And he will soften, he will cleanse, he will restore our hearts. So I'd like to close with a couple of verses from Psalm 51 this morning. This is Psalm 51, Psalms uh, one of the two psalms that David wrote of repentance. So he's making things right after having sinned against God. And he has a couple of statements about our hearts. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Folks, that could be a prayer for anybody in this room today. The first part, God, create in me a clean heart. You may be coming to God, child or adult asking for forgiveness from sin for the first time. And he will create in you a clean heart. He will wipe the slate clean. He will 
allow his saving, cleansing blood to wipe everything white as snow. You say, oh, I did that a long time ago. Good. Renew a right spirit in me. All these things tend to creep in, and we may not even be aware of them, but every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will say, oh, no, that's wrong. And we need to confess that. We need to forsake that. And he will renew a steadfast spirit, a right spirit in us. Later in the same passage, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. A broken, a sorrowing heart. Godly sorrow works repentance. We, we should be sorry for our sin. Now, we should also know that he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. We don't need to wallow in it. But there should be a sorrow. Lord, I'm sorry. I blew it again. I did the same thing again, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Please cleanse me. Please restore me. He's not going to despise that. He's not going to turn you away if you come to him with that kind of heart. He will give you the grace to break up that hard heart, that stony heart, that he will give us a heart of flesh. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here or online as an unbeliever, please stop rehearsing the objections in your head. Please stop coming up with all the reasons. That can't be true. That's not right. I can't ever believe that. Stop catering to your heart of unbelief and simply take God at his word. You can trust him. He will give you the grace to do it. Believers, do you lack understanding? Are you spiritually blind and deaf? Are you failing to remember the good works of God? Trust him. In light of his word, trust him. In light of his past working in your life, trust him. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing a song, but there may be somebody who needs to talk to God. You need to take a few minutes. You can remain seated during the song. If you want to come up here and pray at the front, feel free. If you want somebody to pray with you, any number of us in the room would be glad to do that. But if the Holy Spirit's working, obey. Listen, don't harden your heart. Ask him to soften and restore and forgive and cleanse and renew. Our Father, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts because that's what we need. Give us grace to believe, whether to trust you the first time today for salvation or to trust you again for whatever worries, for whatever wrong thoughts and philosophies have crept in. Father, you not, are not a God of confusion. You're a God of clarity and you desire for us and you even command us to know your will. So I pray that you would make very clear what you want us to do in response to your word today. You've spoken May we obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.